Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 40 for May 18th, 2006. Listener questions and answers, number seven. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. I look forward to Thursdays every week because I know I'm going to learn so much about security. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Gibson, the security guru. <laughs> hey, Leo. Good to be back it's with good you. good to have you. Uh, we, this is uh, uh, episode 40, so um, it means it's one of our Mod 4 episodes. We're going to do questions and answers. But there's some big, a lot of big security news, and I know we want, you wanted to cover some of that. Yeah, a couple things. Um, for one thing, Apple announced 31 vulnerabilities this week. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, with, you know, the uh, OSX version uh, 10.4.6 and previous, and those, are, you know, there are local and remote code execution problems, information disclosure, denial of service, and local privilege escalation problems. I mean, basically, just a, a whole collection of the typical kinds of problems that you know, exactly like what we were talking about last week and the week before with the, this is the fundamental problem of writing secure software. And as, as we all know, Apple has for a long time enjoyed a, a history of much fewer problems than Windows has been exposed to. In fact, you've probably seen these commercials that they're running now, Leo. You know, the, 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 the guy who's, who's standing in for Apple and, yeah. and one who represents the PC, yeah. you know, and how, how the, the PC gets viruses so quickly, but there aren't any for, for the Mac. I and, have some problems with those ads. They're not, but they're ads. They're marketing, but, you know. Yeah, and, and they're getting the message across. That, that, that what I'm noticing is that these are coming out just as it's beginning to be no longer right, true. Right. Well, it's interesting and, because Apple never wanted to play that virus card. And I think that they one of their resistances was they didn't want to antagonize virus authors. They, it was the best kept secret <laughs> in, the, in the computing world was there's no viruses and don't tell anybody. Well, and, and historically, as, as we've said before, People who write viruses write them for the computers they own, and Macs have have again, you know, years ago not been in the mainstream. They've they've been, you know, in schools to some degree, but but what 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 kids had to play with were PCs, and so that's what they wrote viruses for. Increasingly now, of course, Macs are affordable and. They're an increasing target. You watch, though. I don't think we're going to see the same degree of, um, of virus uh, problems on the Mac platform, just because many of the things that make viruses possible that we've talked about on Windows, things like ActiveX, Active Scripting, uh, the fact that any every user is really running as admin, um, those things aren't as prevalent or even well, possible on the Mac side. And, and population size. I mean, a, a virus author who wants a, a well propagated virus will still write it for Windows just due to the population size. I mean, nowadays, the reason people write viruses is to co-opt computers, and you're going to go where you can get the most computers. Exactly. Uh, Another issue, yes. Yeah, another really biggie is that uh, a a flaw has been found in the uh, real VNC um, remote 
authentication. RealVNC is a very popular um, open source remote desktop system that allows people to, you know, die, ba- ba- basically connect to a remote machine and and then get access to its desktop. It's super well used. This is a really bad vulnerability because it defeats completely defeats the authentication, meaning that anyone who can find a real VNC server, or that is to say service port exposed, can, until this patch is applied and real VNC is updated, can connect to it and basically log in immediately. Oh boy. <laughs> now the the I got a kick out of the the you know what to do in the meantime. People were saying, well, you know, close any ports that you have exposed to the internet. And and this comes back to something that I've said before and I want to keep reminding people, which is never leave default ports alone. People who, for example, are running web servers, you pretty much have to have the server running on port 80 because that's where everyone's browser is going to expect to see it. Now, if you were running your own web server, for example, from home, just for remote access for you, for example, if you wanted to access your documents or something remotely, then by all means, move that web server to a some funky port of your own imagination. The only time you really need to leave ports in their default is if you need people who are who who don't know what port you've chosen to access your service remotely. So in the case of real VNC, someone running a real VNC server at home so that for example they're able to access their home desktop remotely by all means change the default port to some random number between 1024 and and less than 65535 because what happens is when a vulnerability like this is discovered the bad guys start scanning the internet for for connections on the default real VNC port when they get one knowing what the vulnerability is they can log on to your desktop and you're theirs there's another way you could secure it. We we use real VNC um, uh, for the radio show for call screening. But what we do is we establish a VPN link first, and then open the real VNC. So it's within a VPN tunnel, which as until VPN is, which could be, but until it's uh, compromised, that's safe, right? Well, as long as the real VNC server itself is not exposed, that is, the real no. VNC port is not exposed it's to internal. the internet. It's internal. Then yeah. Then you're absolutely right. That's a great solution. Yeah. So don't don't. Uh, so in other words, I have to get on the local area network by using v, uh, VPN right. before I can get access to the VNC server. Right. We don't. It's not exposed. It's not. It's not naked to the world. That's a great way to fly. So yeah, yeah. for for anyone listening to this who is using real VNC, immediately update your real VNC to the latest version that you can get from their website. They fixed the problem. But we want to get the message out. And while you're doing that, if you are not running it on a just some non-default um, random port that you've chosen, make that move now. Write the port down, or use something memorable, but you know that, that's not leaving it at the at the standard service port because you you always want to run services on you know non-default ports when you can. And this is a perfect example of why that's a really good lesson. Of course, it's not fully secure to do that because some of the sniffing software will just attempt to make a connection across all ports, but it's a lot slower to do that. Um, 
And so I imagine most people just choose to stick with the default ports, and there are enough open <laughs> holes that they can just use those. Right. But well, if they really wanted to attack you, they could test every they could test every port for a VNC connection. Well, and for yes, for example, an- another approach is if instead of scanning the internet, if somebody knew your IP, from example, for for example, from it being posted in a in a, a bulletin board blog or in email that, that was made public or in a in a, a news group forum where the email was available on IRC you, on BitTorrent. I mean, people it, know your IP address. In many exactly, cases, yeah. it's not something that it's easy to to keep quiet. Right. If someone knew your IP and they knew somewhere on that IP at some port on that IP there was a, a real VNC server, for, you know, for example, you'd bragged about it in the past or or talked about it or something. They could then, find it. <laughs> they could exactly yeah, then yeah. that the you know the fact that they know where what IP it's on narrows their search dramatically. Right, right. Ah, if you used a Hamachi to establish the connection and then had real VNC running locally, you're, 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 that's a great application for Hamachi, and you'd be completely safe. Good. All right. Um, another interesting tidbit that I just wanted to mention is there's a there there's sort of a a, a boiling controversy over uh, the the purpose of the and the future of the Who Is database that ICANN is trying to decide what to do with. Now, this is of great interest to me. I'm sure it is to you, Steve. When I have a website, uh, and I do have quite a few, uh, my address, my phone number, those are made public in the Who Is database. Well, for example, there some one of our listeners created or grabbed the domain. Um, securitynow.info. Oh, dear. Secure, well, <laughs> I know. Uh, securitynow.info brings up a little page that redirects people to to my securitynow.htm page. Well, that was nice of him. Very nice of him. But I, you know, I didn't want to sort of formally endorse that because he has control of the domain and I don't. So... I tried. I tried. I used the Who Is database to try to find him. I got an email address. I, I don't remember now. It was maybe at GoDaddy or something, and sent him a note saying, "Hey, I noticed you registered SecurityNow.info. Would you be willing to transfer that to me? I'd be happy to pay your expenses." Blah blah blah. I never got any reply. Chances are, it went into some bit bucket somewhere, right, right. and he never saw it. So he's so, listening now. Yes, we're looking for you. <laughs> that would be. I'd, I'd really love to have the domain and be happy to again uh, cover his expenses. But again, I can't endorse it because we don't have control of it. So you know, so that's a problem. But but for example, both sides of this is interesting because on one hand, people, for example, uh, political dissidents or bloggers may want the option of retaining some anonymity. And of course, the anonymity is something that the Internet to varying degrees has always offered people. The, yeah, or you know, television the, show hosts might want some anonymity. Don't forget that. Sure, sure. Um, and so, so on one hand, you can say that the Who Is database needs to not not necessarily identify someone to the degree that would that would p- p- potentially compromise their own personal safety the flip side is that in the in the uh uh post katrina disaster relief stuff we know that many fake 
Donate to Contrita Victims websites were created, and the Red Cross was very upset with those sites, and they were able to use sort of the the soft and fuzzy, doesn't necessarily have to be accurateness right. of the who of the WHOIS database to hide themselves, right. and and also to like put non-verifiable obscure records in. So so I can. And in general, the internet community are, are mean, really at odds right now over what to do about the problem. There do- is a simple solution, by the way, I think. Is, is it a third party involved? And in fact, that's what I do with GoDaddy. There's a company that offers its service for a fee at GoDaddy. I think it's Domains by Proxy. And everything, they hold the regist- they hold the information. And everything in my, if you go and do a who is on twit.tv, you'll see Domains by Proxy. And then if you – I can go through Domains by Proxy, and presumably a police agency or ICANN could go to Domains by Proxy and say, hey, look, we, you know, this is a spurious site. We need that information. Right. I think that that would be a, the way to do it, and I hope that they find a solution. Have they come up with anything? Or No, it's really interesting. I, I spent some time the other day reading through the – I mean, just the incredible bureaucracy of, of this kind of process with, you know – opening the forum to the public, allowing people to give their pros and cons. And, I mean, as with any complex issue, it isn't clear that there's there, there's a cut-and-dry solution. And, right, in fact, right. the notion of running through a third party, as you suggest, is discussed there. And, again, there's, like, the pros and cons of, right. of needing to do that. So, Well, it's, it's government. It's, and whenever – I mean, it's a quasi-governmental organization. And whenever government gets involved – I was briefly on the technology committee for my small town here. And it's so frustrating because the laws of California, and they're good laws that, that uh, uh, require uh, you know, the public uh, to be informed about everything you do, things like the Brown Act, made it very difficult. We couldn't have, for instance, a private message board or even a, a mailing list among wow. the group members because the Brown Act prohibits that. So um, it, it, it's both good and bad, and this is, that's the way things are. But I, I do think the third party ultimately will be the way to go. I'm, I'm happy with it. Nobody can get my information, but it is available to you know somebody if they if they if they absolutely needed if it if they can demonstrate a real need yeah exactly yeah. you know they go to court or whatever yeah i think that i think i guess the the issue for me is that i can see validity to both sides of the argument so i think you're right leo oh, that, there is, that, yeah. that, that, that that having some intermediary who's who acts as a buffer for the information probably is the way it's going to wind well, up and you and i are in both sides of it really because on the one hand i don't want somebody to have my my phone number my home address uh, or even my my office address but at the same time, I don't want anybody impersonating me on the net. So, exactly. So, we, I, of course, we can see both sides of the, uh, of the equation. Yeah. Exactly. And then one last thing. Um, a listener named Weaver wrote from the U.K. He loved this notion that I talked about a couple of weeks ago of, of browsing the net with, with basically with a brow- – with, in my case, with IE locked down tight – and then specifically whitelisting sites where I wanted scripting and more features to be available. So that, and in fact, the way he put it, he says, "I love your idea of interviewing a website and then deciding if it was, you know, worthy of trust, and then giving it trust." He wanted to make sure that for people who are Firefox users, that, that they knew they they knew about a, a plugin called NoScript. Um, it's just that the URL is www.noscript.net, which and it's apparently a highly regarded plugin. I did a little browsing around, and it's got five out of five ratings, and it's been recommended by lots of people. The idea being that similarly, JavaScript and Java 
are are prevented in Firefox until you decide that you want to or need to enable those for a site that you trust. And just a single click on a little blocked icon down in the status bar will enable then basically whitelist the site, and this thing works in, in Mozilla and Firefox. Important to make the distinction, though, between the kind of scripting that can be done in Internet Explorer with active scripting and ActiveX and what's available in Firefox. I mean, JavaScript, as far as I know, doesn't have anywhere near the risks uh, inherent in uh, active scripting. Some people did comment. Um, in, fact, in fact, I think I think it was on the uh, on your Twit board, Leo, that that um, you know, plug-in code in Firefox is as vulnerable as ActiveX Absolutely, code sure. is. You know, it it's is running on your system. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. client's client side code that you're inherently trusting if you use those plugins. Although most plugins are written in JavaScript. They're written in Zool, which is uh, basically JavaScript. And so the plugins it's their user interface but they don't have again, they Often they don't, don't have, have that kind of capability. And, and that means they, they don't have that level of power. Right. I mean, they could, and that's the point. If You, you should right. always be careful when you install any kind of the, you know, plug-in. And, and I guess that is to say the bad ones would. Right. <laughs> <laughs> one, one other point I, I wanted to bring up, but we got an email from a fellow who said, you know, Steve's uh, uh, method of locking down IE is great as long as the bad guy hasn't modified your host's file. But as soon as somebody modifies the host's file... He can change where that apparent uh, script is coming from and and breach the security. That's uh, a very, very good point. So if somebody has access to your system or has gotten a Trojan on your system, it could modify your host file and then now, now be of all course, over. By that time, it's side, too late. <laughs> I was going to say, the flip side of that is if they're already in your system to the level <laughs> that would allow them to modify your host right, file, right. then you're pretty much hosed anyway. Right, and then, um, a lot of spyware does that, by the way. Yeah, we have not talked about the hosts file, and we're definitely going Good. to because it's, it's it's ubiquitous. It's an interesting sort of uh, sort of not well known unless you've you've really dealt with this stuff before. Sort of um, uh, way station mm-hmm. for DNS lookup mm-hmm. that, that is powerful and vulnerable both at the same time. And people can use it to protect themselves. And I think yeah. I would love to, to, to have you talk about that. So we'll do it. We'll save that for another one. Right now, though, we've got a dozen questions from listeners. A dozen out of the 5,000 you collected. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I, I, I did the math. I have two folders, one for people who submit things anonymously and one where I could reply to them because they've given me an email address. The sum of the email in those two folders is 6,010 <laughs> messages at the moment. Which is why you're not getting a personal reply from Mr. Gibson or uh, well, from me either. I do, I do when I can. Yeah, as, as do I. Uh, first from Jason in Atlanta, Georgia. He actually has two questions, so he's double your money, Jason. He says, I have Microsoft Small Business Server 2003 at our office, and I'm curious if the SSL certificate that our server created itself is as secure as if I'd bought one from VeriSign. That's a good question. It's a great question, and the answer is yes. Um, the the SSL certificates, which which a any contemporary system will generate, are absolutely as secure as what you buy from VeriSign. However, the only difference is that VeriSign is standing behind the identity that that secure that that certificate represents. Um, which really, if you've built, if you've made one yourself for your own users to access your server, that's really not 
an issue. You just have to make sure you don't lose control of it. Would it be seen by browsers as trusted, though, since it's not? Uh, they, they can't relate that certificate, as you've talked about before, back to those handful of trusted third parties? Well, that's correct. So the idea would be that if you're using a certificate that your own business's small business server has generated, then everyone who needs to trust that would also have to import into their browser uh, or in, into their system the, the, the matching key for the server so that it's able so so your browser is able to verify the certificate because as we know web browsers come pre-built with a huge right. v- array of of um certificate um um uh certificates is what i'm trying to say <laughs> with, with, with a huge array of of existing certificates that allow them to automatically check the the security of of anyone who's trying to connect right right uh, he also says, if I'm at a secure site and I go to a web page on that site that has another page embedded in it, like a, as in a frame or an iframe, would the information be encrypted between my machine and that embedded page in the secure page? Uh, that was a good question. That's a great so I wanted, question. Yeah, I wanted to include that. The answer is no. The, the, the level of encryption is at the level of the connection, that is, the, the, the asset or the resource which is being pulled from a remote server. So if you if you had a frame and the frame loaded a non-secure URL, your browser would make a non-secure connection so that the security on the on the outer frame or, or, or the outer page does not necessarily imply anything about the security of of content inside. That's why I get that error message from my browser sometimes that says part of this page is encrypted and part of it is not encrypted. Is that what that's talking about? Just what I was going to mention. Exactly. There there for example in IE and other browsers what sometimes it's called mixed content. The idea being that not all the assets on the page are secure some for and it might just be images for example that that they're going to a third party server that is not a secure connection and so it's saying hey there you know you you should know that some stuff on this page is not secure so it may be that your browser will alert you but it's not necessarily the case that unless you're sure that it's going to be a secure asset i think some browsers have a modified uh, key icon or lock icon when you're on a mixed site like that i, I it's funny i don't remember for sure but i think huh. i've seen that uh, Two people asked questions uh, relating to uh, President Bush's proposal for tamper-proof ID cards. Steve Gilliam of Pinehurst, North Carolina, wrote, uh, President Bush recently said he wants to give tamper-proof digital fingerprint IDs to legal guest workers. How could public and private key encryption be used to generate these ideas, IDs? And after it goes into effect, how would counterfeiters try to defeat it? And that's one of the problems right now is uh, that illegals often, in fact, have papers that look real because counterfeiters have gotten very good at forging birth certificates, social security numbers, and that kind of thing. Sure. Go ahead and read Ben's question. Ben also asked, the president suggested we needed a document that includes uh, biometric info to make a tamper-proof ID card so that it check your fingerprint or your iris or whatever for every legal foreign worker. Do you think this can be done to a reliable degree? Uh, He says, I tend to think this would require a federal database so the information on the ID card can be validated and probably so the card could be used as a kind of token. I would imagine that a fingerprint could be used like a key to unlock the encrypted info. But I wonder about the likelihood of a standard electronic fingerprint reader reading the same thumb each way, each time. I know when you come into the U.S. from a number of nations, you do, in fact, get fingerprinted. In some cases, they also do iris 
recognition. I mean, they, this kind of system does exist. Well, I like this question, because, or, or both of these questions, because it plays perfectly into the foundation in, in crypto that we've laid before. Um, now, biometrics, of course, is sort of valuable but scary depending upon how it's employed. Um, but, but our crypto side um, gives us enough of an understanding of how something like this could work. Imagine that you had a, an ID card. Um, on the card was a picture of the person who had applied for the card and some printed textual information, you know, name, address, whatever, identif- you know, textual ID that they want to have. Then on a, for example, on a mag stripe, like we have on our, on our credit cards, on, on a mag stripe, the same information, that is a, a JPEG of the person's face and the same information printed on the front of the card would be on the stripe. All that we have to do is take that information and and hash it, as we've seen before, that is create a, a digital signature of that information. Then somewhere there would be a master government public key, which would, which well, public and private key. The people generating these cards would use the private key to to encrypt that digital signature. And that's basically all we need to do. What what that means then is that anybody carrying the card who who wanted to have its authenticity verified could present it to anyone's reader anywhere. The the reader would would read the mag stripe Put the information up. That is basically redisplay the photo and the textual information, so that the the operator could compare it to the person standing there. So, in, in so in this sense, you know, the biometrics is a photo, and of course, people are pretty good about comparing pictures to people's faces and deciding, oh, that was you two years ago, kind of thing. Um, but but the key is because this information had been digitally signed by the government. All of the readers would only need to have the the government's matching public key. So any reader could verify that this information, the the information on the mag stripe, not necessarily the, the visible information on the front of the card, but the information on the mag stripe had not been changed by a single bit. And... And there's nothing then in terms of intellectual property that could be stolen from these readers. I mean, you could it could just be freeware that you load into a PC that has a little add-on mag stripe reader. Anybody could then verify that the digitally signed information on the mag stripe was originally signed by a government agency. So it's really just like uh, me using my PGP key to sign my email. Um, you can verify that I sent you that email, that that was my key, and that the email has been untampered with just by going to the PGP site and matching the keys. Exactly. It, it's it's, a, it's a, an absolutely analogous application. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. you know, crypto solves the problem for us. It's, it's really amazing. Uh, Brian, uh, public key crypto, and that's, that's what's so great about public right. key. Brian from Ontario, Canada writes, I know you've never had an episode specifically about keyloggers. I'm sure we'll rectify that at some point. But can a keylogger be fooled if you use a program like RoboForm, which, by the way, is a great program. I recommend it. It fills out forms for you right? uh, to fill in your passwords. What are the ways to fool keyloggers if, a big if, a keylogger manages to get on my system? I know software firewalls can warn you if a keylogger phones home. 
But viruses and spyware may be disabled your software firewall, or frankly, there are hardware keystroke loggers that you'd never see. Right. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to I wanted to address this because we actually did discuss key logging stuff early in our podcasts when we were talking about passwords and and entering passwords. And many people came up with with clever ideas for defeating keyloggers. Oh, yeah, like, I do remember like, that. Remember, yeah. like, typing a couple characters, right. then clicking the mouse into, into like, a notepad, cutting typing and a few more, right, right. cutting and pasting, scrambling things. I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do if you were concerned about that. So... So it certainly is the case. First of all, RoboForm, which is down at the at the API of Windows, is not necessarily going to be proof from a keylogger because in order to fill in these forms, most of these utility and in order to be like a universal form filler, many of them literally simulate the keyboard oh, interesting. typing into the field so that the same the same hooks into the system which allow a keylogger to see keystrokes will similarly uh, uh, see something like RoboForm typing T- t- basically typing that information in for you. And I guess it really depends uh, on the keylogger, too, because some are lower level and, than others, and others, some are higher level. I mean, true. if a keystroke logger is just looking for scan codes, it, well, it probably admits it, but if it's working at the API level, it would probably see it. So. So, so actually, some of the things that, that people suggested, some of the clever ideas in the brainstorming back at the beginning of our, of our podcast series... Uh, I thought we're were very workable where where nothing who that was just looking at the keyboard would be able to tell where you were typing these things. So change your your keyboard focus a few times, right, right. putting characters in different places so that the end result of 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 the string you want to have correct is correct. But no, but nothing passively watching would be able to figure out what you had done unless it's smart enough to be watching those fields and looking at the input in those fields. I mean, in other words, it depends on the on the keystroke logger. Yeah. Bottom line is, you really don't want to get anything bad in your system. <laughs> no. And it's possible to put a keystroke logger on your keyboard that memorizes stuff. Uh, if you use a public uh, 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 terminal, public access terminal, very yes. likely or not very likely, but very possible that your you, your all your keystrokes are being logged, but. RoboForm would avoid it in that case. Yep. Of course, it'd probably leave enough traces behind that it wouldn't make any difference. Brian um, of Everett, Washington, is concerned about uh, MD5 hashes. In one of your cryptography podcasts, you talked about the MD5 cryptogra- cryptographic hash as a way to verify uh, downloaded files. However, I just read on the Internet, the MD5 algorithm has recently been found to be unreliable. And hashes generated with it can be cracked. I think we talked a little bit about this. He yep. says, is it true a different internet site talking about MD5 said you could salt an MD5 hash to prevent it from being broken? What exactly does salting a hash mean? <laughs> it sounds like something they did in the Navy. But does this fix the problem or is the MD5 algorithm truly unreliable? Okay, there are a couple things. Um, MD5 generates a 128-bit hash, which is beginning to be not long enough. So there are now 256-bit hashes and 512-bit hashes, which are arguably way overkill. But, it, but you know, with computers being as fast as they are and storage being as big as it is, there just isn't really a reason not to use a larger hash to prevent hash collisions, which is what adding bits, more bit length to the hash does. So on one side, on, on one side, it's worth mentioning that this 128 bit is a little short, but but what these sites are talking about 
are something we've discussed in in the context of hashing before, which is brute forcing a hash. If you use an unsalted MD5, what sites are doing is they're pre-computing for many common passwords and passphrases that is up to a certain length. You start getting too many of them as the length grows. They pre-compute the hash. So you end up with a huge table of hashes and the password that if you hashed it would result in that hash. So, so what salting does, salting adds some extra fluff, some extra stuff to the input in order to completely change the output. So, for example, if you, if you put in um, the word dog into an MD5 hash, you're always going to get the same 128 bits out, no matter how many times you put the word dog in. So, in a, in a pre-computation dictionary attack on MD5, the hash for dog would probably be there. If somebody tried it, then they'd be able to figure out what your password was because you'd chosen a really bad password. I mean, there's no way that dog is a good password to have. <laughs> on the other hand, if you just added, for example, a, a minus sign or an underscore or some sort of what's called salt to the hash, then that would completely change the output so that you'd get, I mean, with any good hashing algorithm, a completely different set of 128 bits. So, so adding any other debris to the algorithm will completely change the result and render it basically un, un, uncrackable to this kind of brute force attack. But you can't just add it to the hash. It has to be the, 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 the decoding program has to know about this underscore. You can't just make up something and put it in the hash. Well, the idea would be, for example, Unix systems use a salted MD5. They've got some, some junk that, they, that is unique to the system, which they always add when anyone types in a password, ah. so, that, so that nobody who sees the resulting hash is able to you know, basically have a universal crack for the system. Ah, very clever. Yeah, very, very nice. Clever. Yeah, Carl uh, Schweitzer of Hilbert, Wisconsin, managed to untangle last week's discussion of the stack and buffer overruns. Actually, a surprisingly large number of people wrote to us say, thanking us for it uh, yeah. and saying they got it. And uh, that's great. I mean, it, that was one of the more complicated things uh, we, we've discussed in the podcast. I, I think I used an admirable I, job. I think I used the term aggressively technical. <laughs> as, <laughs> <laughs> But he did have a question. He said, when it comes to the stack, why does it have to write up? Wouldn't it be more secure to write down? Or is there something more complicated going on with that? Okay, now, I didn't quite get his question. I, he's talking about why does it go up in memory instead of down in memory, but I don't well, think it makes any difference, does it? Actually, there's something brilliant about this, oh. which I really liked. The First of all, he says, why does it write up? Meaning, why does your, when, when you are, when you're overflowing the buffer, you're, going from lower memory to higher memory, right. and that's writing up the stack, and, and that's overwriting the stuff that's higher in the stack, which is critical information from previous programs or, or, or previous subroutines. Because as we remember from last week, the stack grows downwards. Well, his point was, if buffers overflowed the other direction, then they wouldn't be overwriting the previous information, they'd just be writing, they'd be overwriting stuff that wasn't allocated yet 
on the stack. Well, he's completely correct. <laughs> uh, now, so why course, don't they do it that way? Exactly. I mean, they should. I mean, I, I love the question. It's brilliant. wait a minute, wait a minute. Now. Come on, <laughs> you're turning years of computer science on its head, literally. Well, okay. Now, first of all, it's not easy from a practical standpoint to to fill buffers downwards. That is, you know, just everything about the way we think has has a buffer being filled from from lower memory to higher memory. But what but even what, if you did that, you would still overwrite. You could overwrite in the negative numbers. Well, but but hold on. But if the stack instead started at the bottom and grew upwards, yeah. And there's no reason it can't. Right. If the stack started at the bottom and grew upwards, so you're saying if it started at, at memory location it, zero, or well zero, not, not everybody not really can start zero. at zero. Let's say yeah. whatever zero is, some some exactly. non, you know arbitrary yes. zero. And then and then allocating memory on the stack, you do by moving your stack pointer uh. up to a, like a certain amount. Now what's happened is you've reserved all of that memory below that point right. for your own use. Anybody else who wants some, they move the pointer up, and now they have they've reserved that region that they just moved the pointer across for their own purpose. And and the beauty of this is the the, the person who is who is currently using the stack is the so-called is like the on the top of the stack. And if stacks grew from the bottom up instead of from the top down, then buffer overruns would overrun out into unused stack space, uh. not already used stack space. It's brilliant. I mean, it would really work. And it would solve the problem. Somehow, I think there's more to it than that. <laughs> All right. If it were that simple, wouldn't somebody have done this? No, I don't. Because again, I'm no. I mean, I, all of I, this I sat, was set up long before this ever became a problem. I, exactly. That's yeah. exactly it, Leo. Is that it's it's a little more elegant from a from an architectural standpoint to have for reasons that are sort of complicated to, and and deal with with the way pointers are handled to have the stack growing down from the top of memory is is architecturally simpler. But it was just done that way, basically as an arbitrary choice. Someone said, shall we have it come down from the top or up from the bottom? And it's a little simpler to have it come down from the top. But but in terms of the problems that it creates, the idea that overrunning the allocation, if, you ha- if you're coming down from the top, you're inherently overwriting the information of someone who's who's already allocated information on the stack right. before you somebody but else's if you, stack frame if somebody else's stack exactly yeah. but if you if, but literally if you allocate instead from the bottom up you don't overrun it's it's wonderful <laughs> okay i know we're going to hear from randall schwartz or one of our other programmers is going to say something but i but i can't think of what it could be maybe you're right and maybe this is a maybe this is a way to design a whole new architecture Garrett of Rochester, Minnesota is wondering about Skype security. That's what we use, of course, to do the show. He says, how could I properly configure Skype for the best security? I'm sitting behind a NAT router with universal plug and play turned off and all the security settings on high. Anything else I need to do for a Skype connection? Um, no. Yeah, we don't, the, I don't do anything particular. Exactly. Now, the, the, one, the one... You're going to give away our secret. Well, the the one gotcha is that it can be useful to allow incoming connections to Skype in situations where both people who want to connect a conversation are behind NAT routers. 
But in this case, um, Garrett was asking about Skype out connections, where he's using Skype to connect to the Skype servers in order to to use Skype sort of as his telephone system. Isn't that, I mean, that's how Skype uh, avoids NAT issues, is we're always going through a server to make the connection, right? Um, well, no. Um, between two users, there's a server to rendezvous the two users. Yes, yeah, so we don't have to worry about the incoming connection because I've already established a connection with the Skype server. Exactly. Right? Right. Exactly. So, 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 so Garrett is completely secure. He's behind a a NAT router, which is giving him the inherent stateful firewall action that that NAT does. He's got universal plug-and-play turned off, so nothing nasty is able to reconfigure his router behind his back to open ports. And he's calling out, he's connecting out to the Skype servers for his Skype out service, and so nothing is able to connect back in. But I, but I wouldn't have an issue. I mean, and I don't have an issue if you call me on on Skype, right? I mean, once I've logged into Skype, anybody can call in as well. Correct. So that, that again, because it has a third party server. I thought you were going to reveal our secret, <laughs> which I don't want anybody to know about how we get these Skype calls to sound good to so good, which is that we use a dedicated Skype port. What you told me to do this, and I, I have to say, it has improved the quality of the Skype calls. Why? Um, well, because I've configured my Skype so that. I'm able to, I, I have basically, a, of course, a non-default random port where uh, where incoming Skype connections are able to reach me. You the can do reason, that in the Skype preferences. It's in the advanced yes. preferences. It's and, and the reason I, ha- I have a NAT hostile network configuration, as you can imagine, Leo, my security here is pretty strong. And you and I, when we were connecting, were not able to get a direct a direct connection because my NAT router wouldn't allow it. So that so the ARC dialogue was going through a so-called super node. It was being relayed by a third party. And what when, when you were telling me that you and I were having such great success with Skype, but but you were having some trouble with other uses of Skype when you were talking to people, mm-hmm. that's when I suggested, well, if if you did the same thing, if you allowed a, a fixed port to come all the way in from the internet to your Skype, then, then basically you don't. Um, if you then it's like you're only behind a single NAT router. That is, the the person you're connecting to is only behind a single NAT router. They are always able to initiate a connection through to you. So a super node is never used, and you get this kind of Skype quality every time. The super nodes are a clever hack that the Skype folks did so that you don't have router problems not router problems but if but you can avoid it by using a dedicated port now i do that unilaterally right i don't have to tell them what port i'm using i just i just choose a dedicated port in my connection exactly options. and suddenly you're just a, a a a higher quality skype connector location do i have to open that port on my router or anything like that? yes you ha- yes 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 you do need to have that port mapped through so that somebody the idea is that that if if both People at each end of a Skype conversation are behind NAT routers. Then the they may not be able to negotiate to connect to each other directly on the fly for for complex reasons of the way NAT works. But if either of the per, of the people will create a statically mapped port through their NAT router, then the other person can always send a packet directly to that port, and the whole Skype protocol. Um, manages 
um, making sure that everyone knows what what the port is. <laughs> now works. you know our secret. <laughs> it, it really does work. It makes a huge difference. Uh, yeah. in, not for everybody, but it does on those people who have. And and do you map just TCP or is it UDP? Or what what do you have to map? Uh, it's just UDP. Just UDP. Okay, now I've given away our secret. We have no advantage whatsoever anymore. That's all right. Except our great good looks. Kim White of uh, Secunda, South Africa, wonders about securing mobile laptops. I have a question pertaining to security of notebooks. Could you guys do an episode on securing a notebook so that when, not if, it gets stolen, the data should be safe? I've seen some ideas that use USB keys and so forth that are used as tokens, but these only protect from login. What about from boot? If the drive is locked from boot, then there's almost no way that the data can be stolen. My concern is that most of my laptop users have IPs from large corporations here in South Africa. It's worth hundreds, or, or not IP addresses, intellectual property, I should say. Right. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars in the open market. He's concerned, and this happens all the time. In fact, it happened very famously to the British Secret Service, whose laptops were stolen and, and secrets were uh, escaped. Well, of course, you know, in the news from time to time, you hear about exactly this kind of problem. Right. A laptop, you know, is like left unattended briefly in an airport and it disappears. Some some corporation has a ton of valuable data on their laptop. Okay, there are, there are a couple things going on. Um, some IBM ThinkPads actually work with the, the drive's serial number to, to lock the laptop drive so that it will not boot unless a password is given at boot time to unlock the drive. That's that, that's very good security, but it has caused problems because it is such good security that if that password is ever lost, you're hosed. I mean, there there is no way short of returning the drive to the manufacturer to unlock the drive. And the problem, of course, is that this is not generally done. This is not generally available on most laptops. So, a, a solution that is laptop specific may not be a good one either. It's often the, said that if somebody has physical access to a machine, eventually they can get the data. Uh, and that's not true. No. Um, no, because, and this is going to be the topic of next week's Security Now podcast. We're going to talk about TrueCrypt. Yeah, we love TrueCrypt. It is a, it is a fantastic open yeah. source encryption solution. Now, what 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 Kim's company would have to do would be, I mean, and this is not just trivial to do, but it, it would the idea would be that the the um, the the most laptops are configured with everything sitting in a one single huge C partition. You know, from from a, a a Windows drive designation standpoint. What what you need to do is do some preparation for this. The idea being that you create another drive where all of the intellectual property resides and and you just have the discipline to keep everything that you need to have safe in this second drive. And then a program like True like TrueCrypt, which we'll be talking about next week, is able to provide unbreakable i mean truly state of the art you know past the end of the time of the universe style encryption to prevent anyone from accessing that um inadvertently and it can be configured so that if the drive is turned off if it goes into standby if it's unattended for a certain length of time that you you must re-enter a password in order to access that contents and and it works for laptops it works well you know for 
PC, desktops, anything, TrueCrypt is a fantastic solution, which is why we're going to be covering it in detail next week. Generally, people set TrueCrypt so that it automatically unlocks once you log in. So you might want to put on the BIOS passwords and the login passwords and all of that stuff just to you know, keep it a little more difficult to log into the computer. Well, yeah, certainly if what you're suggesting is that they have TrueCrypt configured so that you don't need to enter a password. Which is for convenience is good. Then you've ba- well, you've basically defeated the whole purpose. <laughs> Unless, well, yeah, I understand. But you, but if you turn on the, uh, you haven't really because as long as you trust Windows login, XP's login, uh, to be secure, right? Because if they remove the hard drive, they're not going to be able to log in without Unf- your password. Yeah. By the way, Macs have the similar built into the operating system a similar uh, uh, strong encryption called File Vault. Uh, does the same thing as TrueCrypt does, but it right. also is set to when you log in unlock. And in that case, you want to modify your firmware so that nobody can change the master password. Right. But a good system. We like TrueCrypt. You can even put it on a USB key. Uh, Ben, writing anonymously from his Gmail account, asks, The question is probably really dumb. Maybe that's why I wanted to be anonymous. But I have locked, I have looked every place for uh, somewhere to download PGP, and every site I try leads me to the same place, pgp.com. He doesn't want PGP Desktop 9.0, which isn't free. Can you please send me a link to a site where you can download a free G- PGP program? Well, and Leo, we know what that is. Yes. And you talk about it, and it's what you use. It's what I use, which is the open source version of PGP. Uh, the, the, the story is long and tangled. I mean, Phil Zimmerman originally made PGP open source, but uh, the assets of PGP and the intellectual property was sold to a corporation, which still, if you search at PGP.com long enough, offers a free version. But it's a long, hard search and not worth it uh, when you can just go to GNU Privacy Guard, G-N-U-P-G.org, and download uh, an open source free version of PGP. And that's what I use on the Mac and what I, everybody should just use that. Right. Well, when I saw this question from Ben, I just, I just went to Google yeah. and put in GNU space PGP, GNU PGP, right. and took me right there. Yeah. So that's how anybody can find it. They call it GNU Privacy Guard to avoid the... Uh, Probably copyright, the copyright trademark. issues of PGP, yeah. but so gnupg.org will, will do the job, and it and it's great. I mean, I it, it works on all machines. It uses PGP style keys. In fact, I'm reusing PGP keys that I made. Uh, it's completely interoperable. Well, and PGP is now an RFC standard. There, there's an RFC associated Good. with it, so yeah. it's been well defined. So you don't have to go to the PGP Corporation to get. PGP. To get real PGP. Yes, it's real PGP even without it. Um, Jason in Madison, Wisconsin received a nasty gram from his corporate IT department. Oh, I hate those. He writes, I just received a nasty gram, essentially stating that I must remove Skype from my laptop because, quote, it is P- P2P or peer-to-peer software that lets viruses in, end quote. Their words, not mine. What are the security risks posed by Skype? I realize my company may have a bandwidth issue regarding the Supernode feature in Skype, but is there something else Skype users should be aware of? That's a great question. Well, it is, and and I wanted to I wanted to to first say that if this is a corporate laptop and it's their property, then you want to 
make sure this doesn't get escalated beyond a nasty gram. Because they could do anything they want. Yes, you could, certainly you could argue that this is their computer you're using, I mean, if that's the case, and that they have a right to specify what software is used on it well, and well, not. Even so if forth. you bring your computer into the corporate network, they can tell you what programs you may and may not use. I mean, sure. that's their right. It's their resource. Good. Exactly. So, so... The, 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 he, he brings up the issue of supernode, which we were just talking about, and about the bandwidth being consumed. And it sounds like his corporate IT department somehow discovered that he was using Skype on his laptop. All of that sounds like he does not have a firewall running on his laptop. Because you, you can't be a supernode if you have a router or a firewall. Exactly. You wouldn't, you, 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 supernodes are, are random Skype users who are not behind a NAT router or a firewall, who suddenly discover that they're being used as a relay point for <laughs> other people that Skype cannot otherwise connect between. And we should point out that that should be a f- small number of people getting smaller all the time. I mean, who's on the Internet without a firewall or a router? Come well, on. And it, is, it is an annoyance that Skype provides no user interface option. You can't for, turn it off. Exactly, for mm. disallowing super node usage of your own client. So so I, I would tell Jason that if you know if he wants to continue using Skype and I would imagine he's behind Windows XP or he he's he's using uh Windows XP that if he turns on the service pack 2 firewall that ought to be built in or uses any third party firewall so that inbound connections are not allowed he should be able to use Skype without any trouble, and there's no way his IT department could ever determine that that's what he was doing. But again, I'm not suggesting that he goes against the wishes of his, his corporate IT people, but, but you know, their argument that Skype is peer-to-peer and therefore is, and for that reason, should not be used, I, I think that doesn't hold much water. But they're, I can certainly understand, uh, understand them not wanting to get into all this. And they're right not to, but I think they're con- somehow conf- conflating it with the... Uh Napster or Morpheus or, you know, one of those peer-to-peer. It's not peer-to-peer that way. Right. Yeah. Although uh, I, I think there is some uh, kind of tenuous connection with Kazaa, I seem to remember. But that's not the peer-to-peer. That's, well, it's, it, in, in fact, it was the Skype, it was the Kazaa, the Kazaa guys who figured out Nat Traversal, right. who then started Skype and used th- that Nat Traversal technology from their peer-to-peer experience in go. order to, to create a system that just works behind Nat Router so, so easily. But it's not sharing music. You're not allowing virus. I don't think there's any way. I mean, it's not allowing viruses in, is it? No, of course not. No. No, not unless you, you know, somebody sends you a file and you accept it. Well, in fact, j- j- at the beginning of this podcast, Leo, That's, I sent you a did. PDF, <laughs> and we use Skype in order to right. send a, to do a file transfer because it worked just beautifully. And you can do that in chat clients and, and instant messenger clients and so forth. Right. In fact, the truth is, if they allow any instant messenger at all, it's no different than Skype. I mean, AIM, uh, Yahoo, all of these offer voice internet over the internet in very much the same way as Skype does. Right. Russell of uh, Salt Lake City asks, we all know that chat clients, oh, here, yeah. speak, speak, speak of the devil, devil. <laughs> chat clients like MSN, AIM, and Yahoo Messenger are about as insecure as it gets as far as the channel of communication goes. My question is regarding Google Chat. I'm not talking about the standalone Google Chat client, but uh, when you log into your Gmail account, this is something new they just added, uh, at using HTTPS uh, colon slash slash gmail.google.com. In that web interface, you're able to conduct chats. So my question is, uh, you know, I'm inside the secure server, HTTPS. 
uh, I'm encrypted and secure. Am I, or is it using a different port? I mean, is my chat secure? Right. Well, this is really interesting, and I thought this was a great question. The, the you have security guaranteed by HTTPS, that is by an SSL connection, which we know is really good security um, from from your browser to Google. The problem is um, everything that you are chatting with then goes through Google's servers. And who's to say that that next year Google's not going out going to announce, hey, by the way, you can search for everything you ever chatted about. <laughs> Which they might. Because we've been sucking Wait, it all in <laughs> and keeping it forever. You know, and it's a possibility. Google tends to do that. So, yeah. you know, with our government becoming increasingly concerned about you know, terrorist activities within our borders and all of this NSA eavesdropping and, you know, now all of our phone records being sucked up and analyzed. Um, I would be concerned using any third-party server to be the relay point for my chats. There is a very good, very secure chat client called Bitwise IM. Oh, yeah, we like that. Yes, in fact, you and I, Leo, use it because it also offers VOIP services, although the quality still wasn't up to... Oh, in fact, it it uses the Speaks codec, which is why we gave it a try, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it still wasn't up to what the GIPS, the global IP sound technology that Skype is using, is able to give us. So we backed away from it for our our podcast recordings, but Bitwise space IM, if you just go to Google and put in Bitwise IM for Instant Messenger... Um, I know the author. I've interacted with him. In fact, I've worked with him to improve his NAT traversal technology so that it works a lot better than it did before. Um, it really, this guy's a neat guy. It's cross-platform, Mac, Linux, and Windows. Um, and it just looked, you know, if you're looking for something that isn't a huge bullseye, that, that isn't the same sort of target that MSN and, and AIM and Yahoo and, and Google are, where you, where you want to do point-to-point chat and not run through a third-party server oh and everything is encrypted so it's very strongly encrypted chat um it's what i would recommend there are corporate versions available of aim and msn that provide encryption as well but this is just you know you just download it it's free and it's easy to use yeah it's great david from bozier city louisiana discovered security now two weeks ago welcome david he just he says he just finished listening to all 39 episodes <laughs> whoa uh okay he must be a little exhausted right now he had a question I love that yeah i think that's great he had a question about linux open source and buffer overruns he says unless i'm misunderstanding something i would think there would be more exploits from buffer overruns with linux since it's open source and a programmer could see all the problems in the code easier than windows in other words could find these uh holes or does that make it less likely to have problems with things like buffer overruns because of the number of eyes looking at the code in the open source community? I ask because I, I would think this may be one of the great concepts that comes from the open source community and wondered your thoughts. This is actually a, a common area of discussion among open source folks. I would say that it is the big unresolved issue. That's why I, I, I thought this was a great question that, that David had posed. Is I mean, and it, it's it's a religious battle in the same way that you know Mac versus Windows is sort of a religious thing. It's it's you know closed are, versus open source. Exactly, closed versus open. What is more secure? You made a comment that I didn't react to 
last week when we were talking about buffer overruns, which was that many of these are discovered by people just pounding on the code. And in fact, the guys at EI down in Aliso Viejo, they've got a room full of machines that just throw junk at software. And when one of those machines crashes... It's because they just found some new buffer overrun. So they basically have a million monkeys <laughs> in a room trying to crack it. Yeah, and but that's the guys are finding software. stuff all the time right. in, a, in exactly this fashion. Whereas you could look at a source listing of a program if you were really an accomplished programmer or, or accomplished hacker and, and perhaps find buffer overflows. I guess, you know, it comes down to the, the, the choice of, of security through obscurity, that is, you're secure because it's kind of hidden or, or true security, which is that it's open, it's exposed. And, uh, and you know, people, yes, will find it, but people will also fix it uh, right away. I, my, I, I, I bet on open source, to be honest with you, but that is a religious battle. You're right. My sense is that from, from, a, from a programmer's standpoint, if there were backdoors deliberately programmed into code, you, those would be found immediately right. in an open source environment. Which is why PGP was open. I, mean, I wouldn't trust any encryption program that wasn't open source because you need to know what they put in there. And so that's the advantage of open source. But but the nature of buffer overruns is that that it wasn't clear to the programmer who wrote it. And when you look at the source code, there's this inherent tendency to adopt that same mindset and to sort of follow along with the code. It's just so hard to see the mistakes that somebody has made, even when you're looking at it. So I don't think that open source would be more secure because people would tend to find other people's mistakes. People tend to just read along and, you know, get through the job that they're doing uh, it's it's more the case that you find these things sort of just by pounding on the code, exactly as you had said last week, Leo. And, and there's certainly, I mean, the truth is uh, there have been plenty of buffer overflow exploits in open source software. Um, it, it, it's certainly no programmer's immune from it. That's a very good point. Uh, and, uh, you know, here's the question. I mean, if, if, you, if you write a module in a, or a part of a major open source program... Is anybody going to rewrite it or check it for security? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Well, and that's and actually that's a very good point too. It's it's cool that this source is open, but many people wonder if anyone else ever looks at the source code right. again. I mean, in theory, they do. I mean, there's somebody with commit access to an open source project who's supposed to review all of this stuff. Um, but it's you know, I mean, yeah, I think there's no guarantee it's been highly reviewed. Well, yeah, a perfect example is my use of of a news server. A GRC uh, runs a very active, wonderful set of news groups relating to security and privacy. Um, anyone who's got a newsreader, and in fact, everybody who is using a contemporary browser probably has a newsreader built in. You can just go, you can aim your newsreader at news.grc.com. And we've got a news server with a, a bunch of fantastic news groups there. Well, I've got all kinds of extra features that over the years I've built into our news server, like we have secure authentication and people who post notices are able to delete theirs, but nobody else can, can delete theirs. And I've, I've take, taken the open source standard INN news server, and thanks to it being open source, I've gone in and, and made a whole bunch of custom enhancements for you know, basically turning it into a hybrid, adding a bunch of GRC stuff, which I would never have been able to do if it were just some new server 
I'd bought in executable code fashion and then inherently been unable to modify. So it's a boon for a programmer, but it's not clear to me, you know, that from a standpoint of, you know, tons of people going over the source code if problems are going to be found that way. We'll win you over yet, Steve. You're getting, <laughs> you're starting <laughs> to sound like an open source kind of guy, I have to say. You know, it also depends on how low level the code is. I think if it's a, if it's a PHP, uh, you know, uh, message boards uh, system, uh, a lot more people are looking at the code than if it's uh, an assembly language uh, kernel module. So. Well, and that's a perfect example, too, of something that is very vulnerable. A, a PHP-based message board system is inherently, you know, it's like sticking its face out there on the net <laughs> looking, for, <laughs> looking for someone to find a way to exploit it. Right. And, of course, right. we know that there's just, you know, PHP exploits by, by the hundreds a month. Right, right. Our last question. Paul Winters, nestled in the Colorado Rockies, asks, I'd love to hear your comments, Steve, on recent legislative proposals to have ISPs maintain logs of all activity. What good would this be if a user is using VPN or encryption of any kind? Uh, he is completely correct. I mean, it is disturbing when we see legislation. I mean, and the ISPs are as disturbed as their users. Oh, they don't want to do this. No, it's a huge burden. The idea being that they've got to maintain logs for law enforcement to use in order to track down illicit activity. I mean, it, it's a it's a good thing if it works. It's hugely burdensome for ISPs. And then you end up, you know, with people feeling like their ISPs are spying on them uh, much as we do now with you know, all of our phone records going to the government for for processing and, and analysis, and and so so the question was: Does running all this traffic through a VPN solve the problem? And the answer is yes. There is again contemporary VPN technology cannot be broken, and uh, all an ISP would have is, I mean, literally random bits of data. Because as we know from our security podcasts, once you have true security, tr the, the data that results from good encryption is indistinguishable from random noise. Yeah. And so that's all an ISP would be able to see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I'm, I'm using encryption more and more. Although, you know, in Britain, uh, the... Uh, um uh, the House of Commons, I guess, just proposed a bill. I'm not sure where the bill came from. The to government. legislate against encryption? No, to make it oh. uh, illegal. Actually, no, I take it back. This has always been the law, but they've never enforced it. Now they're talking about enforcing it, that you must reveal your password or decrypt if requested to by law enforcement. And if you don't, you just go straight to jail. Wow. And I think that that's going to be a concomitant of any kind of move like this. If they're starting to log all the information and the encryption is widely available, well, you've got to pass a law saying that you have to hand over the keys. So that's interesting. So the idea being that if if they capture a bunch of this random noise we're talking about... They can go and, to the guy. And they say to you, Decrypt. you must tell us... Yeah, exactly. Basically, we, we are legally compelling you to decrypt this data so that we can see it. Um, you have to or suffer the consequences go to jail anyway wow whether you've done anything wrong or not so and i think that every i have a feeling that every major industrial nation will pass laws like this because that's the only way to deal with encryption uh and crime 
uh, especially as encryption, encryption becomes more uh, well known and commonly available. Yeah. And that, well, and as I mean, here here we've been talking about um, the NSA um, literally eavesdropping on the content of calls to where they have reason to suspect that there's something bad going on and it's like well okay all you have to do is use voip and encrypt it because we know no one as far as we know not even the nsa is able to decrypt deeply encrypted you know state-of-the-art encryption on the flip side if this legislation passes then all they do is collect the data and compel you to decrypt it that's for right them. wow i mean it makes sense but uh you know, it's not easy to feel so smug now about encryption. Yeah. In fact, there's some, even some move that the UK may actually, ahead of time, ask businesses to hand over the cryptographic keys just in case. Just in case. Hmm. It's a t- <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I don't want to get you upset. I know how you feel where, about these things. Where can we move to? <laughs> Nowhere. That's the problem. Uh, now, that's why one of the things we like about TrueCrypt is this plausible deniability. It doesn't even look like encrypted data. It just looks like noise. Yep. But if you've got noise, I guess you could say if if, if you were on your Internet service provider and sending something that sounded like noise, uh, you could say, oh, what are you talking about? That must have just been a burst of noise. Uh, prove prove that it's not. Uh, encryption? What encryption? Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, in, in fact, it is not... It is not possible to prove that encrypted data is not random noise. Right. So maybe that's our defense. There we go. We solved the problem. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Uh, what do, we, do we have a plan for next week, or are we going to wing it? Well, if you're not going to make me prove that a stack is much better. <laughs> I guarantee you I'm going to hear from Randall Schwartz and he's going to explain why there's no other way to do it. But anyway, we'll see. Maybe, you know, what? He, he could very well send me an email saying, you're right. Why don't? Why didn't I think of that? Uh, but other than that, do you have any other ideas? Next week is TrueCrypt. Oh, we'll do TrueCrypt. Great. Yep. Can't wait. That'll be a lot of fun. We do thank you for joining us, thanking our friends, of course, at Astaro Corporation for making this possible. We couldn't do it without them, and they've, they've just been so generous. Uh, our, our great sponsor. If you are interested in security, you should know the name of Staro. If you're interested in open source, you should know the name of Staro. They make great open source security solutions like the Staro security gateway uh, for your business or even if you're a home user for you uh, absolutely free you download it and put it on a a pc and you've got all sorts of great security you can pay a little bit more and even get anti-spam and antivirus and spyware filtering too well and thanks for the fact that it is using you know lean and mean open source os and solutions you can take that old cranky machine from the garage that you know no no longer play games anymore and and turn it into a really nice internet firewall appliance download your free copy today at astaro.com and of course it's not exactly a sponsor but we do give a lot of credit to spin right because that is steve's day job and without it well i we'd have to find a way to pay him or something it keeps it keeps the lights on and it helps people uh all the time yeah it's wonderful if you want to read some testimonials for how People have used Spinrite to recover their data, to save their drives, to save their lives. Go to spinrite.info, S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E.info. Go to grc.com slash securitynow.htm. If, or I guess you can go to securitynow.info for a while anyway to get the show notes. 16 kilobit versions of the show for the bandwidth impaired and full transcripts, thanks to Elaine, of uh, each and every show. And, of course, uh, Steve's uh, notes about the topics we talk about. It's also a good place to read the security news groups that he has going there at grc.com and uh, even submit uh, your questions for future editions 
of Security Now. GRC.com. That's the home of Spinrite and Security Now. Thanks to our friends at AOL Radio for providing the bandwidth for this podcast, AOL.com slash podcasting. And thanks to you, Steve Gibson, for being such a dude. Always enjoy this, Leo. It's It's really fun. Thank you. We'll see you next Thursday on Security Now. Security Now.